Welcome to this new Ed Voices podcast by Education International, the Global Union Federation that represents teachers and education support personnel in 178 countries from early childhood to higher education. This is the third and last episode of our series entitled Teasing the Tech with Neil Selwyn, professor at the Faculty of Education in Monash University, Australia, and Martin Henry, research coordinator at Education International. In this episode, we will be looking at the impact of education technologies on quality teaching and learning. Are the dominant forms of education technologies improving the quality of education? Is edtech making education better? more inspiring, engaging, innovative. Over to you, Martin. Thanks, Mao. So it's good to have you back here, Neil, for um, section three of our Teasing with Tech series. And we're going to be talking today about quality teaching and learning. So to kick off, for education unions, there is a growing need to address the lack of structures and processes to assess the effectiveness of digital technologies in education. In a recent AI survey, 53% of teachers consulted alleged a lack of involvement in the assessment of digital technologies. That was Teaching with Tech we did with Christina Colclough. How can teacher unions reverse this trend? Uh, it's a real constant problem. It's lovely to be back talking about technology. Um, whenever you talk to teachers and say, what can we do for you? One thing they always want to know is what tech will work for me? What's the best thing for doing X, Y, or Z? So as well as not being involved in the assessment of digital technologies that are used in schools, teachers get very little kind of steerage on, you know, what's what, what tech is actually kind of right to be used. So it's a constant problem. And you often just find teachers either going for what's number one in the app store or what's pushed onto them by marketers because, you know, everybody is time poor. No one really wants to think too much about this. And so you just go with what's what's there. So what's interesting is when you talk about effectiveness, what you mean by effectiveness normally people talk about tech in terms of learning effectiveness or teaching effectiveness, which is really difficult to objectively measure. Um, so I've got a big problem with anything that claims, you know, this will make sure that X learning happens or, you know, exam results go up by Y. I think at a base level, we can possibly work towards some sort of systematic assessment and grading or marking of software that does it meet basic levels of best practice. And that might be in terms of, you know, basic levels of education appropriateness, data sharing or privacy. Um, so I'd be happy to just have it at that level. I'm not sure you can say this is the best, most effective learning tool because learning is such a complex thing. There are so many different variables. Most people that claim a certainty that this technology it does this in terms of learning or teaching is either being cavalier with the facts or is trying to sell you something. But I think we could certainly get teachers assessing systematically technology about its appropriateness. Is it, is it, you know, but does it, is it best practice for what we're using in classrooms? But the obvious thing is teacher crowdsourcing, you know, a collective online effort where you get teachers to actually kind of talk about the technologies they're using, the pros and cons of it. But on the other hand, you don't want to just kind of put the burden of, of, of this onto teachers. So, I mean, clearly government have, um, role to play in this government agencies in the uk in the 2000s there was a, a education it's called becta the british education communications and technology agency 
which had a lot of faults. I was never a cheerleader for Bechtel. But one of the things they did do, actually, was kite mark um, software at grade and assess. Teachers found it really, really useful. And they got so much pushback from corporate corporations who just didn't like any interference in the market. So it's a really difficult thing to do. But I think it is interesting to think about what role government agencies might play in this. And there was a recent Paul Ramsey Foundation report in Australia in December that made just this recommendation that we need to have independent research and evaluation of teaching and learning technology and that government should support that by funding it. And actually, one of the second recommendations was that there should be education specific standards enforced by government that cover you know product design and data use and accountability that can actually help education managers but also teachers guide purchasing decisions and procurement and also help the industry fit these standards as well so it's a bit like the wild west at the moment and there's no reason why you couldn't have some kind of repository of you know trustworthy information that was independently produced on the quality and the safety of you know the tech tools that we've got and that's something government could do that's something maybe philanthropy can do but you know it could be done the the third idea i might have if i given that i don't have to do any of these i can just come up with ideas you could have a bit more of an activist approach there's a colleague of mine in oxford university who runs what they call the fair work project which is where they rate gig worker apps and they do it all around the world and they get local unions involved in local worker collectives and it's really interesting it's very very simple they've got kind of five different principles and they collectively grade each app in terms of these principles and give them a a, a number out of 10 and it's really interesting how quick a lot of these providers are shamed into changing things just to get a better rating and it's this logic of, you know, how many stars have you got? But the principles are not kind of, you know, how speedy is the service and everything else. It's fair pay, which is the first principle. Fair working conditions. Does the app provide a safety net to the gig workers? Fair contracts. Fair managements. Are there due processes for decisions affecting workers? And fair representation. Does it support expression of collective worker voice? And they've really successfully got some of these apps to completely change the way they work purely just by kind of publicly saying this is a one-star app don't go and work for these guys they're they're cowboys um so you could do something like that you have a more of an activist approach where teachers actually kind of call out some of the worst tech uh and do it that way so i mean there are lots of different ways governments should get involved you know but i quite like the idea of teachers actually speaking up and saying this this isn't good enough and we're going to publicly rate you as not good enough why not Sounds like we need a combination of this, Neil. And um, we're doing some work with Wayne Holmes as well, who's also talking about this regulation approach. We do believe that government has a responsibility and we do believe there's a role for teachers to get involved in actually shaping the tech that they're working with rather than just getting it delivered as they walk into the classroom one day. Yeah, um, if... we're, we're working with regulators in Australia about facial recognition. And one of the arguments they had was we do not need a new regulator for facial, for AI, for example. We need the existing regulators to get their heads around what AI is and do their job in AI. So I'm not saying we need a new ed tech regulator. We could maybe work with existing regulators and just get them involved. Um, otherwise, you the trouble is government and regulators are not very good at tech. They don't really understand it. So you can imagine what they'd do if you asked them to do that. They'd get consultants in from tech industry to consult them on what to do. And we know that the tech industry does not like being regulated. So it's really tricky, which is why possibly having the bottom-up approach as well might shame the government into regulating properly as well. So, yeah, doing a 360 kind of um, attack on this is probably a good idea. But 
tech is really difficult to regulate in any sector. So it's not an easy job. We'll have people building AI models to do the regulation next. But yeah, with yeah. that... Ask chat GDP. <laughs> exactly. With that worrying sort of thought in mind, the other side of what we're looking at here in the whole teaching and learning space is techno stress and, and the ways in which tech can undermine teacher well-being. Teacher well-being has been a massive issue for us in the past few years, as is student well-being. And I think if we think about that, and, and we're aware of the real impact that technology is having on people's lives, and we've talked before about the need to go running or whatever it is, uh, about how you find other ways to deal with what's coming at you. But we know a lot of teachers feel that the accelerant that tech puts into their lives is something they can't control. So how can we go about helping in this techno stress area? Yeah, so does techno stress exist? I think stress exists and technology doesn't help it. Um, so I, I think a couple of my answers have, over the past few series have been technology doesn't necessarily cause things, but it amplifies it, accelerates it, makes it happen in different ways. So I think lots of things that we can be worried about in terms of tech are not necessarily new. So we, we have people talk about cyberbullying, for example, or students being disengaged or people getting more into conspiracy theories. Tech hasn't caused that to happen, but it's certainly really kind of accelerated it. And it's the same with stress. There's a lot of stress in education and technology doesn't help. So I think there are ways to ensure that technology doesn't exacerbate work stress. But I mean, if you want to solve the problem of teacher techno stress, just solve the problem of teacher stress um, and, so we can we can hope we can kind of dampen down the way technology tends to amplify stuff. You know, schools can work to configure their systems in ways that are mindful of stress. That's something I've really tried to think about over the past few years. How can schools slow down, deliberately slow down the use of technology? Defang systems of yeah, their immediate as you said, you know, tech is tech is really needy. Tech has a kind of attention-seeking logics built into it. It wants you to press it and click it and always turn it on. How can we kind of slow the tech down and not do that? You know, I'm, I'm all for schools turning systems off. Turn turn the email off. Turn the LMS off. Stop it working for it. For, you know. the, the thing that interests me as well about tech and well-being is how tech's often just spun as a solution. And you often see this in in, in um in education there's a problem how can we solve it technology and if technology is the problem we just need more technology or different technology to solve the technology both problem and there's been a push to kind of offload well-being and health onto tech and that worries me as well you know there's been a rise of kind of mindfulness apps or well-being online sessions and training and chatbot counselors and these are being pushed into schools now for teachers and for students and that really worries me. The idea of having a mental health chatbot, I think, is is just a terrible idea. It's, it's, it's a really dangerous disinvestment, I think, in the proper resources that we need to be putting into mental health and well-being to tackle these issues. And it's a really easy way for employers to kind of say, oh, yeah, we're doing something. We've got a kind of a well-being chatbot. And it's pushing the responsibility back on the individual to sort themselves out. It's a very self-responsibilizing thing. Ah, oh, you didn't do the well-being online course or you haven't talked to the, the, the mental health chatbot. So that's a concern as well. Techno stress does exist and we need to work out how to do it. But well-being in tech, I don't think tech is a solution to these issues either. So there's a lot to push back on there. I think you raised a really important point there. And I'll refer to a previous podcast we did in the ed tech area with um, Stefan Vincent Lecran from OECD and Randy Weingarten and Karen, Carol Campbell were in that podcast. And we looked there at the use of tech 
in responding to special needs kids. It was part of the digital education outlook. And, and it was with some horror that we thought you can use a robot with a special needs kid uh, and it's going to um, improve the situation. But we wouldn't do that with a kid in the mainstream. And, and we had quite a good discussion about that. And there is a lot of thinking going on in this area, as you're well aware. I'm not going to fall down the neck of that now, but but it's something that we are thinking about. And we do want reasoned ways of going around how you keep the human in the picture in these things. I really like your turn it off approach. And I'll be using that at work, no doubt about it. So number three question is, during COVID, school closures and remote online learning, our members in Argentina, and I've talked about them before, engaged in social dialogue to claim the right to disconnect for teachers. What are other regulated issues that you think employment contract clauses can make a difference around? Um, do we need some sort of universal declaration of digital rights? And I think this is Ma's idea, to be fair, about naming the source. Or, or, or what is going to give us the sorts of protections that we need to build around the worker to ensure that their teaching and learning experience is a positive one and that they have some control over? Yeah, no, that's an interesting idea. I'd like to see what a universal declaration of digital rights would, would look like. I think human rights is an interesting way to think about it. And there's colleagues of mine have had real success with um, getting digital issues put into child rights, um, which is an interesting thing to think about in terms of children technology. It's Again, it's not unique to education. So again, it's something actually all public sector workers might want to get together and push for. There are some specifics, I think, in terms of digital rights and education. I think I've talked previously in, in previous podcasts about surveillance. And this is technology that lends itself to surveillance, to monitoring, measuring, tracking, surveillance logics. So I think that's a particular right. The right to not be seen, the right not to be surveilled, I think, is a really important one. We've been looking at that in terms of... Um, <laughs> There's a push for technologies that monitor everything that goes on um, and, and always kind of is engaged with the student and what they're doing. So everything you do online in terms of learning analytics is, is arguably allows the, the product to be more tailored towards your performance. There's an argument, actually, that you need a bit of privacy, that you need space to get stuff wrong. You need space just to mess around and, and you know, just, just stuff up. You don't necessarily always want to have everything you do monitored and, and, and used in terms of assessing who you are. So there's this idea of mental privacy, that there should be times in the school day where teachers and students are not surveilled. You have time to yourself, even if it's just zoning out and, you know, daydreaming or having five minutes where you're just you're not on task. I think that's really important. So the right not to be monitored, surveilled. So all these things, actually, we argue should be opt in. I should opt in when the system's going to start tracking what I'm doing. And I'll opt in when it suits me. Now, the logic of big data doesn't like that. The logic of big data is continuous, comprehensive surveillance. So the more we know, the more we can change. But I think there's something to push back there. So that's one thing. I'm really interested about the interpersonal stuff. So, I mean, teaching isn't the same as dealing with a customer online. You know, if you, people that work in kind of online call centers and things like that, they've got certain rights where you, you only have to speak to someone for a minute, blah, blah, blah. Because teaching isn't like that, dealing with a customer, teachers feel a duty of care. So with students or parents, you feel particularly obliged to respond immediately. Online teacher-student contact seems to be 24-7, particularly when working at the time. So I think there's a right to not respond immediately, you know, and often the best universities and schools do this. 
our students at, at my university, for example, can only expect a response within three days. Now the fine line becomes, is that the weekend or not? But at least there's a, there's a clause there that they, they cannot complain if they don't hear back from us within um, you know, a couple of hours. So that's something else. Um, I, th th there's definitely some issues around um, the disciplinary uses of school of technology. And this is more for students than teachers, but educational institutions are inherently disciplinary. They're used to controlling student behavior. Um, so there's somebody who said there um, in terms of not using technologies in ways that, that are controlling. Um, there's something that, um, and actually for teachers as well, a lot of, technology is a source of tension because a lot of teachers actually having to firefight and, and, you know, monitor and curtail um, students' technology use. You know, you can't have mobile phones in the classroom. I need to take phones off you or you, you shouldn't be looking at YouTube and the rest of it. And, and, and you can't do that with digital technology. It doesn't work. <laughs> students will always have a second screen or do particular. So again, teachers perhaps should have the right not to have to do that because I think that's, that's a source of uh, tension. Uh, and extraneous labor and just coming back to mars idea and i'm calling it now mars idea about digital disconnection i think it's worth recognizing that you're never fully disconnected from technology i talked about turning off email or turning off the learning management system even if you do that even if you don't have a device in front of you you are still working on various platforms and systems you're part of the learning management system doesn't stop piling more work up or taking messages from students and you know that stuff carries on even if you're not part of it you know your youtube account doesn't stop getting clicks and ratings and these are all things that are taking place without you physically being switched on or logged in but they still take place so that's interesting to think about that way that we're never fully disconnected um so we can't completely devolve ourselves from our online presences as well so yeah having something like a digital rights bill or whatever it would be a lovely idea but in some ways it just relates to the broader workplace culture if you have a respectful workplace, presumably you have respectful digital work. If you have a democratic workplace, you might have more democratic um, involvement in, in digital tech conditions. So in some ways, coming back to, I've said this a couple of times now, it does really relate to the broader conditions. You know, we need better workplaces, then we'll have better digital work. You've taken us neatly to the next question. And I do think we've un underdone this really in this, uh, in this series, is the question of, equity i mean if mm. we think about all the things we've been discussing we haven't really dealt with the impact that this has on those who are the disconnected and the dispossessed and the vulnerable and the marginalized and and, and if we look through the picture of what's going on in education there's nothing new about this since paul willis and learning to labor how working class kids get working class jobs and so on and I do like your Foucauldian reference of discipline and punishment. And, and, and if we think about the ways in which digital tech is being used against sections of the population, so how do working class kids respond to these questions? How are they able to have control over tech? Or, or, or in what ways is digital inequality falling down harder on their heads? Um, I think is a really important question for us um, it's deeply ingrained in our public education systems. And what can we do about it? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you talk about Willis and learning to labor. I mean, there's been a big push, for example, for coding for you know disadvantaged schools and everyone learns code. 
the research that's been done in the states on that is that it just makes working class kids get crappy tech jobs so you can teach coding all you like but you're not going to become you know mark zuckerberg or bill gates you're going to be one of the grunt workers earning minimum wage tapping a keyboard so i mean it's really interesting to think about these very well-intentioned um, interventions using technology to kind of address issues of uh, of um, inequality and disadvantage at the end of the day i think one of the big buzzwords i've picked up on over the past few years is tech will not save us tech won't save us tech is not going to make things fairer or more equitable you know we need more equitable societies and more equitable schools and universities technology is not going to make anything any difference there's so i think if you just put tech into education settings it makes things worse or it makes things the same which is worse so without any thought given to equity at all all the research shows that technology normally just exacerbates inequalities. It widens differences, you know, it, it advantages the already disadvantaged. So we've seen this with all sorts of stuff. MOOCs, I don't know if you remember MOOCs from 2010, they were the big kind of change everything, democratize education. Everyone could have access to the best tutors, yada, yada, yada. What you found was the people who took MOOCs and did all of them and got the certificate at the end and did the test were those that were middle-class college educated often white males exactly the type of people that weren't, weren't supposed to be helping but you know those are the types of people that had the capitals to, to engage with it properly so it might be that everyone got more access but those that were already advantaged got even more access so it just kind of widened disadvantage and you see that time and time again studies on MOOCs virtual schools in the states the cyber charter schools for example massive inequalities there computers in the classroom we, we know this. So I think inequality and equity in these issues are really, really, really important. COVID laid bare the digital divide. We saw this in the kind of rush to remote schooling. People used to think that the digital divide was an old fashioned thing from the 90s. And we're all online now. COVID showed that that was absolute nonsense. Um, we Most households are online. I think it's something like 90, 95 percent of households um, of school aged children. Um, but there are huge disparities between having a smartphone and sharing it between three kids, which is what lots of families were doing in the lockdown. And, you know, MacBook Airs and iPads and three, four, five screens and broadband and the rest of it. So there are massive, massive disparities. And so, you know, there are things you can do to try and counter it, but I don't think you'll fix it. Um, and, and even when you really do try and make a really big effort, and you can see these case studies of particular things that really did help. It's very, very localized and very context specific. It worked in one instance. You can't scale those sorts of things up because often they're based around people. The people in these schemes are the things that make, you know, disadvantaged kids suddenly get better jobs. It's got nothing to do with the tech itself. So in some ways, I think avoiding digital inequality is really about avoiding inequality you know home online learning is compromised by families not having enough money poor housing household poverty caring responsibilities and everything else that's not going to disappear by redesigning a web page but you know we can be mindful of those issues and then when we do stuff make sure that things are designed for the most disadvantaged the most marginalized the most um, vulnerable not to be further disadvantaged so you know, you shouldn't mandate one way of using technology you should give people flexibility to use a smartphone or perhaps do stuff offline or on paper allow people to work around things you know it doesn't make sense to mandate macbooks it's interesting when we were teaching online 
do you have your cameras on or your cameras off? It's lovely to have your cameras on because I can see you. And it's, it makes me feel as a teacher valued because I can see you all nodding along. There are big equity issues about that. Those students that are living in households which are quite chaotic or, you know, disadvantaged and you don't want to show your living conditions, for example. People who are neurodiverse, for example, that don't like looking at a camera all the time. It doesn't work for lots of equity reasons to have cameras off. So there's things like that. And when educators picked up on that, people were very quick to kind of change their practices. Um, but, you know, we have to be mindful of this when we just use tech. Just using tech is not necessarily making things fairer. So we need to design, I think, ed tech provision equity first, not just an afterthought. And be mindful that not everyone has all the resources and they're not online all the time. And I think we can use tech then for, for good reason, purposes, but we don't kind of, you know, think tech is going to solve everything. It's not. I think you raised some really important issues there. I remember hearing at an OECD meeting um, towards the back end of COVID that there were 27% of students in England, which is a relatively rich country, who had nowhere in the house where they could even put their books let alone devices that they could connect to. And, and I think if you look at the scale of what we're talking about, you're absolutely right. And inequality has to be one of the major foci for education systems to overcome. Um, absolutely. And, and that's got to be done deliberately. We have, I mean, one in, was it one in nine households in Victoria, which is the state where I live, use the library for Wi-Fi. And we've got reports in the States of kids having to go to McDonald's for their Wi-Fi to do their homework because after school, the school shut down. And so, you know, the more savvy schools during lockdown were allowing Wi-Fi access in their car parks and allowing the kids to go along to the car park to use. And it's really low level stuff, but there's, they're at least mindful of the issues and working with it, not just pretending that. It... And again, it just it, it just individualizes the problem. It's your fault for not being online. It's your fault for having a dodgy camera. It's your fault. Yeah. You know, we need to just think more collectively. So, you know, schools that were lending tech to kids or you know, work, there are ways of doing it, but it just means being a bit more human about it and not thinking that the tech is going to solve it. But you're, you're right. The digital divide is always going to be with us, regardless of you know, how many devices we have or how whether we're on 5G or 6G or 7G. It's always going to be an issue. Okay, well, that takes us to one of my favorite topics, teacher professionalism. So we think it's threatened by technicist approaches that reduce autonomy and increase dependence. How might we avoid this in the adoption of edtech solutions? Yeah, no, deprofessionalization, I think, is a, is a big issue and de-skilling. Um, we talked before about unbundling and taskification. The more that teaching is kind of unbundled, um, uh, Braverman and the division of labor and all this kind of stuff. You know, technologies always work like that. So that is a logic and we nearly need to be worried about that. Um, the dominant, <laughs> talk about independence and autonomy, the dominant forms of technology we've got don't do independence. Um, they do individualization, which I think is really, really different. Um, this is a problem. I think, you know, as a consumer, the fact that we're an individual consumer makes us beholden to providers, but as educators, if we're individualized, it does make us vulnerable to kind of, you know, monitoring and control and coercion. So it, it kind of reduces solidarity and collectivity, um, which is which is which is a worry. And really, the other thing as well, that tech does promise autonomy, but a really strange version of autonomy. And if you kind of get under the skin of when tech people talk about we'll, we'll make we'll make you more autonomous, it's about autonomy of outcome. 
rather than um, what, what you and I might see as autonomy. So it's the idea that you can do things with minimal human input. You know, so AI offers us autonomy in theory by having a life that's free from actually having to address collective problems through politics. Um, it will just sort things out and make decisions. Because it's rubbish. Genuine human autonomy is not an individual trait or quality. I can't just say I'm going to be autonomous now. Tech can't just suddenly make me autonomous. Autonomy is something that's actually collectively decided upon within communities, within societies, within schools. And that's how, uh, so I think that's really, really tricky. Tech cannot make us autonomous. Um, in, at best, it's a kind of very individualized self-sovereignty, which doesn't work, might work well if you're playing computer games, but it doesn't work very well, I think, if you're a teacher. So I think the main problem here is why technology degrades or actually stops collective solidarity. And I think that's, it strips away most of the things that really make us autonomous uh, and, and interdependent, you know. So if we can work out ways of reconfiguring or reimagining technology that actually in, uh, stimulate conditions of, you know, cross-community dependence or mutual obligations, actually allow us to have spaces to interact with each other and disagree about things and cooperate. Um, I think that's 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 how we should be trying to use technology. Some of that can be done off-grid, and I like the fact in COVID, for example, that some of the most interesting uses of technology were where teachers and students and families were not using the official systems, but underneath were second screening and were setting up WhatsApp groups to kind of organize themselves despite the technology. Or they were doing really interesting things by file sharing and stuff like that or giving each other USB sticks in the park. So technology possibly can be a way that we can have that autonomy, but a collective autonomy and a kind of interdependence uh, and not just be individuals that are trying to kind of, um, you know, be efficient uh, online. So yeah, tech can probably help, but it is a real worry. Uh, and professionalism, I think, again, isn't an individual characteristic. It is a collective thing. So yeah, more, more, more solidarity focused forms of ed tech. That'd be nice. I think you've raised some important questions for us around this whole area, Neil, over the series of podcasts we've done. Uh, and I think us actually imagining a place of collectivism within the tech realm is an important move to make. And, and it seems to me that students have already moved into that area where they're communicating with each other online and they're going through these collective approaches where they're building a collective identity. And for us to do the same for, within the union movement, I think is an important question. And it's one that certainly many of our members are grappling with. We've had massive meetings of thousands of teachers, and you can do that with tech. You can't do it when you're all sat in the same hall and it only fits 3,000 people in it. Uh, and the extent to which we use those and we use the individual. I love your example of passing the USB key over in the park. It's like some sort of Joseph Conrad image, but, it, but it's one that we, we can play with and think about uh, and work out how the tech and the individual are operating together. Um, so that takes me to our last question in this series, which is about gaps. I will have a personal question for you at the end, as usual, but this is the last substantive question. Um, what gaps are there in the research on EdTech, in particular regarding its impact on quality teaching? Where do you think more research is needed? As a researcher, you're always going to smile at that one and think, well, we've got to do a lot more. And, and these are the areas. But what do you think? If we, you know, if we haven't got endless funds, what's our best place to do research in this area? 
I, I was smiling because I think most research in this area is rubbish and we don't need any more research. Uh, I could go on about this at length because I've been researching for 30 years now. Research on ed tech, academic research, and actually industry research and government research is traditionally really weak. It's really poor stuff and, and still actually remains a mixed bag in 2023. It wasn't great when I started in 1995. I think a lot of it comes a lot of the problem is people are only interested in technology and education if they've got a passion for technology and education it's the enthusiasts people wanting tech and, and, and i've referred to it before as a positive project ed tech people are in it for the right reasons they want technology to make learning and teaching better they fundamentally believe technology can do this and they want to prove it how it can be done and help everybody to do it so it's a real kind of well-meaning positive thing but I think this is really disingenuous because it becomes more like a cheerleading thing than a kind of objective evidence gathering thing. Um, and you never see the failures. You can't admit that technology doesn't work. You never see the breakdowns and you never kind of get the, the flip side. So I'm a bit of an odd researcher. So I'm not really that bothered about technology. I've got no kind of you know, skin in the game. I'm not really bothered whether I find out it works or doesn't work. I'm really interested in, in just looking at the kind of the, the reality, the nitty gritty of technology use in education for better and for worse. So I think one of the problems we need to do is, is to shift research away from this push to find good news about technology. We did research, as I said before, we did research for a government agency in the UK. We got a contract to work for them. And I was really surprised they gave us the money because I've got a reputation for not being completely on, on message. And they said at the end, they said, we'll give you the money. And then the guy fixed me in the eye and he said, but only good news will be used. And I thought, A, that's really interesting. B, you've said that before, haven't you? Because he said it in a way that was, that was his mantra. So we need to move away from this idea that we're just trying to kind of um, find out what works and why. Because that's a really limited way of looking at, at, at anything, but particularly technology. Anything you find that works is going to be really context specific. There's no one size fits all answer to how tech works. You, know, you can't scale it up. So I move away from this idea of edtech research as propaganda. On the flip side, though, because I've pushed this idea of critical edtech research, I think a lot of that's gone too far the other way, that there's a lot of research now that's preoccupied with kind of seeing through the possible implications of these edtech hype, edtech imaginaries. You know, they're talking about, you know, automating classrooms with AI. What's the worst that could happen? And there's a researcher called Lee Vincell who talks about critty hype, that critics are actually adding to this hype by criticizing it. You're talking about something that's probably not going to happen. Just by talking about it, it gets more people interested in it and gives it more credibility. So you don't want critics that are kind of looking at the worst case scenarios either and going in the black mirror direction. So I think we need we do, we do need more research, clearly, but we don't want it to be cheerleading and we don't want it to be fear mongering either. I think we do need a lot more about this warts and all studies of how tech is actually playing out on the ground. And I've talked before about we don't need to look at the state of the art. We want to look at the state of the actual. And that means looking at the, the tech that everybody uses, the crappy tech, the tech that's just in the classroom, not the cutting edge stuff, the leading edge or the bleeding edge, but the stuff that's actually here, there and everywhere. And it's often stuff that's been in classrooms for 10, 20 years. It's not particularly exciting or emerging or, you know, cutting edge but it's the stuff that so the realities of tech use how people are coping with it and also around the edges where there are there is room for creativity and surprises and and good stuff <laughs> where's the, the where is stuff flourishing 
um, but not kind of just trying to prove that you know this is how tech is going to solve everything. So we need more realistic technology, I think, more socially realistic technology and technology that is rooted in these broader concerns that we've talked about over the past series of solidarity and collectivity and community and care and hope and all these other things that you don't normally talk about. It's not just about efficiency and metrics and the rest of it. So yeah, a more humane, realistic, gritty um, tech research would be fantastic. And I'm the man to give the money to, because that's the type of stuff. <laughs> but there are people that do this research. And actually, when you get teachers doing research, this is the stuff that teachers actually normally want to research because they've experienced this on a day-to-day basis. They're like, actually, I really want to research you know, email and how, how it infects my work. So actually, probably more teacher-based research might be good, but not the tech teachers, not the tech enthusiasts, but the, the teachers that don't really care about technology. They're the ones that should be doing the research because they're the ones with the more interesting perspectives. It's the English and drama teachers we need, Neil. That's what I've always said. I, um... I do. I I I compartmentalize any researcher I meet in education as what are they as a teacher? So the ed tech researchers are the maths teachers and the science. I'm not stereotyping, but of course I am. Uh, and the science teachers. The most interesting stuff comes from the history teachers and the English teachers. The English teachers don't research ed tech; they research ed media. But there's some really interesting research in the ed media space that actually is really about tech. So, yeah. But we also need art teachers. We need, we need teachers, but not the science and maths lot. STEM has got its place, but is not everything. I love it, Neil. And you've given us so much to think about over this series. And, and we're going to be chewing over many of these issues for the next decade or more. And like you, we've been in the game for a long time and we expect to stay in it because technology isn't going anywhere we know that the, we've got some approaches where the sky is falling in and we've got the others that are always in the green fields and we're somewhere in the mud in between. So we've got to keep yeah. wading through and, and looking for the reality. And I'm going to ask you to let your imagination run wild. And our last question is, what do you think the most accurate description of tech is in film? So you've got to choose one film. What film do you think is the best realisation of tech as it operates today. Oh, as it operates today. Um, <laughs> we uh, This is another sidebar conversation, but we did a big thing on public understandings of AI. And it is amazing how public understandings of AI are shaped by Terminator uh, and a few other films as well. So, I mean, that's the kind of uh, tempting one. I don't watch that many films. There must be something where it's just, I mean, Office Space. I don't know if you know that film, but it was a comedy in the 90s that by Mike Judge that did Beavis and Butthead. But it's just about the mundanity of working in an office um, and just, yeah, the, the, the very low level mundane stuff about photocopiers and crappy desktop computers and stuff like that. That, I think, is the most accurate um, and dystopian, but also kind of uh, oddly funny depiction of technology. So, yeah, you can have your minority reports and Total Recall and, and uh, Terminator, but I would go for something much more mundane and much more sort of uh, messy, because I think at the end of the day, tech is messy. I love it, Neil. You're going to have me rushing off to watch Office Space now. Oh, so- if you're into work, if you're into workplace culture, Office Space, I would recommend that to anybody. It's an absolutely fantastic film. Thanks for your time. We've really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks, Ma. Thank you, Martin. Thank you, Neil. To get the latest global education news and advocacy, subscribe to Ed Voices on your favorite podcast app or anytime on SoundCloud. <laughs>